How much cash should I have saved up before transitioning my practice to the RIA model? It's today's question on the transition to RIA question and answer series. It is episode number 92. Hi, I'm Brad Wales with Transition RIA, where I help you understand everything there is to know about why and how to transition to the RIA model. If you're not already there, if you head on over to transitiontoria.com, uh, you can find all of the resources I make available, uh, this entire series in video format, podcast format, I have articles, I have white papers, all kinds of things to help you better understand the RIA model. Again, transition to RIA.com. Okay, uh, as I said at the top, what we are going to be talking about on this episode is if you've concluded, and again, there's a whole process leading up to before you would make this conclusion, that the moving into the RA model is a fit for you, you've determined which pathway into the model is best uh, for you, you've determined all the solution providers you might need to lean on, Again, that's that's uh, exactly the sort of thing I help uh, advisors with is each of those steps. But let's say you've you've done all that. Now you're gonna your your plan is to go ahead and transition into the RIA model. Uh, and of course, the transition itself is very important because it doesn't matter how much planning you've done. It doesn't matter what the future state or setup will be if you can't successfully transition your clients. This is this is not going to work out well. So the transition is very important. Now part of that is your comfort as an advisor going through that transition and, and where that comfort and, and, and part of that's going to come from is, hey, do I have enough cash or liquidity saved up to cover all the costs and to get me through that transition to the point where my clients will be moved over and the, the revenue we will be coming back in? And so that's what we're going to talk about on today's episode. Uh, and this is kind of... Uh, there's not a one rule for all advisors here because some of this is it's just a comfort level for each individual person. So we're going to talk about, yes, there's some hard costs and those hard costs have to be covered. But then in addition to that, it's just the peace of mind you might have as an individual to say, hey, what will give me comfort, what will give me peace of mind of it is if I have this extra you know, kind of buffer saved up to get me through that process. And so I'm going to Kind of go through what some of these variables that are involved in this and give you kind of some specific numbers you might want to consider uh, for your own situation. But again, advisor specific as we go through this. So kind of to start with the question is, well, what what how much what kind of, what do you need the cash for up front? I guess at a, at a high level. And so I have a couple bullets here I want to go through. So and this is in no particular order. Um, but again, this is thinking money in your pocket or access to the cash, essentially day one as you begin the transition. So the first one for some of you, you might owe your prior firm back some sort of um, remaining, maybe when you joined them originally, you got uh, a forgivable note, forgivable loan, loan bonus, bonus, whatever phrase they use for it, but it's money that you received up front. Uh, with the expectation that you would stay a certain period of time. And if you don't see through that entire runway, you generally owe back a, a prorated portion or, or essentially whatever the remaining balance is on that forgivable loan. Uh, they will want that money back, right? And they typically want it back relatively quickly. Um, and so you will need to, to understand what that dollar amount is, what that expectation is going to be, and, and then have that cash available 
essentially right from day one. So that's kind of like the first big bucket that won't apply to some of you. Some of you are not in that boat or yeah, you, you receive some sort of bonus and it's ran its course or you're, you never received a bonus, whatever the case is. But if you have an outstanding balance on some sort of bonus that's been given to you that they, that you would have to owe back a part of, you got to have that money ready to go. They will want it quickly. And by quickly, it's not like they expect it within 24 hours. They probably will rather quickly send you some sort of demand letter for it, but it, it generally needs to be paid within the first couple of weeks after you have made the move. All right, so that, that's kind of the bucket number one. The next bucket is what I often refer to as is day one costs. So those are the costs involved if you were to start your own RA to get that RA stood up to get you to day one, essentially turning the lights on on day one. Now, I did an entire separate episode on this of uh, how much does it cost to start an RIA? So if you want to go even deeper on this topic, check out that episode. Uh, but I will cover just at a, at a high level here because it is relevant to, again, how much cash do I need to have? And, and as you'll see or, or, or listen to, if you if you check out that other episode, uh, I, there's, there's kind of two main buckets of cost of starting and running an RIA. Now, the good news is most of the costs are essentially forward-looking, ongoing costs that you don't necessarily have to come up with a lump sum for, to, to start with. So an example of that is most technology you might utilize as your own RIA is typically paid only on a going forward basis. There's not some lump sum you necessarily have to come up with on the front end, and it's typically paid you know, maybe quarterly or monthly or whatever the case is going forward. And oftentimes you can even sometimes get first couple of months for free uh, as part of it. So the idea that at least with those costs, it's not something you have to, you have to have that readily cash available for essentially on day one, you'll absorb those costs going forward. In some cases, even have a little buffer before those costs kick in. So from a, from a startup perspective, again, there's the going forward costs that would not apply to what we're talking about here. How much cash do I need in my pocket, essentially, initially? Um, but you will need the startup costs. So examples of things that you have to essentially pay for upfront is the RIA registration itself. There is a cost involved. And in, in, in I've done all kinds of episodes on this. The, the standard path is you hire what's often referred to as a compliance consultant firm that will help you do the registration, uh, help you do the filing, create the advisory agreement, policies and procedures manual, everything that has to be done again to get you to day one from a regulatory perspective of the RIA, that is typically a one-time lump sum payment that does have to be covered up front. Now, um, as I talked about in many of the episodes on compliance consultant firms, you typically also continue to engage those folks on a going forward basis to help you manage your compliance responsibility but again, those are going forward costs that, that that you'll just pay over time. You don't necessarily have to have that all up front, but you do have to be able to cover the cost of the registration itself. Uh, again, I've done other episodes on that and happy to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with you about what your registration costs might look like because it depends on your size and complexity and those sorts of things. But that is an upfront cost that you would need to have the, the, uh, the cash available for. Another example of kind of startup costs is uh, what you intend to do from an office perspective. Uh, and this can vary wildly. So, some of you might go and say, hey, we're actually embracing the work from home or the virtual environment. And we do things by Zoom or we go and meet clients where they are. And, and so we need a very small to, to no footprint uh, office footprint at all. If, if that was your strategy, 
obviously kind of your startup costs from an office perspective are going to be rather low. On the other far end of the spectrum, you might even say, okay, not only do we want an office, we even want to buy the building, which has significant long-term benefits for those that are able to do that either initially or, or at some point. Uh, but if we're going to buy a building and maybe do some remodel or some build out, and then by the way, we have to furnish it. Obviously, there's a lot of startup costs involved in that. So you have to factor in what is that going to cost? Uh, and then, of course, there's flavors in the middle. There's if you just want to lease an office and maybe there's no build out needed or the or the landlord gives you a build out credit. Again, that can lower that startup cost. They'll really depend on where you fall in that bucket. Uh, for those of you that might already be uh, independent with like an independent broker dealer and you already have your office, well, the good news is you already have the office. There's no upfront cash outlay that you need to come up with. For those of you that are a, a, a traditional W-2 broker dealer that's supplying you with an office, you will need something, whether you go virtual or whether you go full purchase in a building and building it out yourself. So that, again, is very advisor specific. But whatever that cost is, you typically are going to be able to need that cash or that capital upfront to be able to make the move. Uh, and, and, and a lot of these are not actually spent literally. It's not like you're writing the check on day one of launch. And a lot of this is spent leading up to that point as well. Uh, another example of kind of, you know, uh, day one cost is uh, your website or marketing strategy. Now, I, I talk a lot about those basics. Uh, I believe you have to have. You have to have a website. You have to have the logo. You have to have some basic collateral about your practice to be able to to share with your clients while you're talking to them about this this new path you're taking, this new venture. What you don't necessarily have to do is is even if you intend on maybe doing webinars or making uh, YouTube videos or have a podcast, those typically are things that you can you can start implementing after you after you've crossed the bridge, after the revenue is coming back in, after moving the clients over. Uh, and those can all be perhaps very important to your business development uh, strategy, but they don't necessarily have to be covered up front. But there are some things that arguably are are uh, table stakes that you have to have. You have to have that website. You have to have some of the basic marketing collateral. So again, that's an example of what you have to come up with cash on the front end as well. Um, and then kind of, so that's not an exhaustive list. Again, I did a different episode on it, but just some of the idea of, okay, this is another bucket you have to fill. Okay, what are these kind of startup costs, if you will? Uh, now, keep in mind, if you were to join an RIA, and there's all kinds of pros and cons to join in an RIA versus starting your own, uh, and I've done episodes on that as well. If you were to join an RIA, uh, you will save on some of these costs, perhaps. So you won't have that startup uh, cost of the registration of the RIA itself, because one of the reasons you're joining an RIA is to not have that responsibility, and you're, you are utilizing their RIA, which they have already started you know, previously, of course. So there is a way to mitigate some of these costs, depends on whether you are outright starting your own RA or perhaps joining an RA. So something to keep in mind as well. And that's just kind of, again, indicative of all these different levers that, that are advisor specific. Um, and then kind of like the third main bucket. So again, to recap, we talked about if you're going to owe money back to your prior firm, that's one bucket. You're going to have startup costs. That's another bucket you're going to have. And then the third is there will be kind of a, a temporary dip in revenue that comes in. And what I mean by that is, as you have uh, your accounts at your current firm, and they're, they're uh, fee-based accounts, and so there's that reoccurring revenue, well, the moment you resign and then, and then move over to launch your own RIA, of course, you have to move the accounts to your new home, wherever that is. And, and for some of you, depending on your circumstances, might not even require changing the custodian. 
Um, but for but for many of you, it will require uh, a change. And until those accounts are moved and you've had the client sign the necessary paperwork, typically something for the custodian, your advisory agreement, at that point, you can essentially turn the fee billing back on for that client. And there typically is a gap though. So even if 100% of your clients come with you and it's a relatively quick process with your clients, there is still going to be a gap because it literally, the accounts have to move. You have to have those conversations. Clients have to sign some paperwork. So you do want to anticipate that temporary dip in revenue uh, that, that, that is just a normal part of the transition. Now, all of these things, and, and particularly that kind of dip in revenue, and an example of that is to equate it with uh, refinancing a mortgage, which I, I, I use this analogy a lot, and it's clearly not as timely as it once was because interest rates are so high, but back back when they were very low, and it, it made sense for a lot of folks to, to refinance their existing mortgage to get a lower interest rate. Well, when you refinance a mortgage, uh, there's closing costs involved, and, and you usually have to pony up that money on the front end. But the idea is, well, that makes sense to do because then going forward, you're going to have that lower interest rate. You're going to save on your interest each month. And, and yes, it will take a little bit of time to in, in saved interest to recoup those closing costs. But once you've, once you've broke even on that, obviously it's better off than going forward. Same thing here with that revenue dip. Yes, you got to take a, a temporary revenue dip. But the idea is if you're making this move, more than likely, the economics are going to not only be better, in some cases, significantly better. So it's worth it to, to essentially take one step backwards to go two steps forward. But nonetheless, you do have to be able to weather that temporary dip until you, again, move the accounts over and get them started on the fee bill and process again. So those are some of the kind of upfront things you need to be prepared from. Again, are you going to owe money back, startup costs, and the inevitable temporary revenue dip that comes with it? So the question is, okay, I, I can pencil all that out and that's helpful, but what's maybe the best way to think about how much in total I want available? And I'm going to talk about kind of sources of cash or, or liquidity that you can use for this in a moment. But one of the best answers I got from an advisor after having gone through this process, uh, this was a team about $500 million left a traditional broker dealer environment, started their own RIA, uh, went through all the steps, all the process, uh, had a transition. And in hindsight, after the dust is settled, after everything had, had, had uh, gone through the process, uh, in, in talking to them, we, we were talking about this. Hey, what, you know, obviously you planned ahead of time. We talked about it. Uh, but in hindsight, do you have any kind of rule of thumb you would suggest of how much liquidity in a perfect world you would have had uh, and what would you suggest to other advisors? And I think his answer is good. And his rule of thumb, again, this is very advisor specific. So, so your comfort level might be more or less, but he said what would have given him the ultimate comfort is to have had, and again, I'm going to talk about how you can cover this liquidity here in a moment, but is to have essentially cash or access to cash to do two things. One, all the necessary startup costs involved. So whatever that kind of hard dollar amount, let's build all that out. Let's come up with what, what that cash outlay is. And then second, what would have given him the most comfort is to have four months worth of overhead costs on a going forward basis. So put differently, he essentially said, okay, what, what is my overhead cost each month going forward? So that's for things like uh, the rent on the, the lease for the office. That's things like the, this, the salaries for staff and benefits. 
that's the utilities, everything like that. If he mapped out and said, okay, what is my rough overhead? And hypothetically, if I had no revenue coming in for four months, which again is not how it plays out, um, but but that's where his comfort level was, was just to say, man, if there, even if there was no revenue coming in, what would my cash outlay be? And in his case, he liked a four-month buffer. Uh, and so he said, what am I start costing? And what would that four month? That's what that's what would have given him the most comfort. Uh, and obviously the four month uh, essentially is a, is a super conservative thing because the clients do move over. But usually by four months, you have the bulk of your clients already moved over in the fee bill and already turned on well before the end of the four months. Uh, but that's an example of what would have given him the most comfort. It's going to be unique to you. But I thought that was worth sharing just to give you an idea of kind of how much cash, how much liquidity you might feel comfortable with. So uh, the final thing I talk about is just you know sources of capital, sources of, of cash for this. So the first one is obviously is personal savings. So obviously if you have saved up uh, and you have cash available, um, or maybe even you have securities and whatnot, and, and you can essentially borrow against it perhaps, although I'll give you a reason why that could be tricky. Um, but if you have personal savings, obviously that's gonna be uh, a bucket of money that you could use for this kind of transition process. What I would advise you, though, is if you if your bulk of your liquidity, personal liquidity, cash or whatnot, is you know you might have it in a bank uh, that has nothing to do with your current firm, and it's over in a bank, and you can access it however and whenever you want. Uh, if you have that cash, though, or or assets, even if it's and it, I'll come back to, to securities, but if you have it in cash and it's sitting in perhaps a brokerage account at your current firm, my suggestion is you remove that cash out of your current firm before you resign and give notification. And the reason I say that is particularly for those of you that possibly have an outstanding note that you would owe back some amount of money to your prior firm. I have heard of firms that the minute someone resigns, they quickly scramble and they say, oh, whoa, whoa, is this person going to owe us money? Yes, they are going to owe us money. Oh, how much money is in their account? And they put a freeze on the account. A freeze meaning you can't access that capital. Now, we could argue they maybe don't have any legal right to do that, but I have heard it before where the firm's stance was, well, we would rather put a freeze on that account and deal with them maybe sending us threatening legal notices or even trying to sue us. We'd rather deal with that than possibly have that capital leave and this person not pay us back what they owe us. Uh, I have heard of that before. So what I would suggest is if you have cash and it's in a brokerage account as your firm, is take that out of there. Now, the tricky part I, I alluded to, you know, maybe you have uh, securities, uh, equities, and, and wh whatever you're invested in. Also at your firm, typically you're required to, right, for supervisory reasons, that can be tricky because you you can't unless you can unless you liquidate that and move it to cash and take it out of the account. Typically, most of you are not allowed to you know open a brokerage account somewhere else and 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 move those securities elsewhere. Uh, that would be nice if you could because then you could even maybe take a margin loan against those if you wanted for liquidity purposes. I realize most of you are not able to do that, but to, but to the degree it's in cash or you feel comfortable that it made sense to convert it to cash, I would say get the cash out again, before you resign from your firm. So there's no chance they can freeze your cash against your will. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, if if you, depend on what path you're going on, whether you're starting an RIA or joining an RIA, sometimes there is opportunity for some upfront capital from wherever you're landing. So if you are starting an RIA and you're going to a custodian, 
it's it's fairly limited, but depends on your profile, depends on how much assets you have. Uh, there could possibly be some uh, often referred to as client benefits that a uh, custodian might be able to provide for you that will help you from a liquidity standpoint to cover certain costs. I don't want to overplay that. This is this is nothing even remotely close to. If you're at one wirehouse, you want to go to another wirehouse and get some big check. Uh, that's that's a whole different arrangement and and whole different set of handcuffs and ramifications of doing that. The the economics is not even remotely close to that. If if it's even available at all, but there's a chance there is possibly some opportunity for some capital there. Or if you were to join an RIA, some RIAs do extend some upfront. I don't want to say a bonus, but we'll call it transition assistance uh, to be able to help you with that move. Again, these are modest amounts, not meant to be a life-changing wealth-building event, but to help you with this, these capital requirements of making a transition. Again, that's specific to each RIA. Some do it, some don't. There's no there's no free lunch. If, if you do receive money, obviously, typically, they're going to require that you stay there a certain amount of time so that they can make a return on, on that investment. Um, but know that there is potential for that to be partial part of, of how you're going to come up with the needed capital. Uh, the third example of capital is you might have, uh, you might consider taking out a home equity loan or at least have a home equity line available to you. Uh, th that comes back to, you know, that four month push in that this one particular advisor had. You don't necessarily have to have the cash in your pocket. But you you generally, whatever you kind of conclude your comfort level is, want to at least have access to the cash in case you feel, oh, the accounts didn't move as quickly as I thought they would. And so there's there's even more of a kind of a revenue dip until it all comes back to the uh, expectations. And so an example of where you, you can maybe from that comfort level is if you had a home equity line, which you don't necessarily even have to draw on, and, and maybe you'll never draw on it, which would which would be ideal. Uh, but that's another way to kind of come up or have available access to capital is to, to have that in place. Uh, I would recommend, though, particularly if you're W-2 now, that's something you want to have in place before, long before you resign to go in a different direction. If you're W-2 uh, and you resign and then start a firm and two months into this, you decide, oh, wow, you know what would give me a little comfort is I get a, a home, at, home equity line. It's going to be significantly more difficult to go through that process with the bank than it would have had you done it while you were still, you know, actively employed as a W two employee. Uh, the bank will say, "Oh, wow, you've just started business. You only have two months uh, run rate," and they will see you as a higher risk, or at a minimum, it will just slow the process down. So, if you think some sort of home equity loan or home equity line would be part of your capital pool. Start working on that now ahead of the transition. Have that in place, uh, ready to go. Uh, and then the final thing I would just note, there are uh, specialty lenders in our industry that uh, uh, gladly loan to advisors that uh, are essentially already on the other side that, that have demonstrated uh, cash flows, demonstrated client base. Um, absolutely, there's a whole, number, a whole lot of lenders that would love to have a conversation with you about, about loans they can extend to you. The challenge with using those lenders for, for what we're talking about here today, uh, they typically need the assets to have been moved over before they will loan against them. So even if you have 500 million at your current firm, you say, oh yeah, yeah, but 90, 98% of it's gonna, gonna move over with me. And, and even if that bears out, with, you might know that, you might be comfortable that the lender wants to see that that actually happens 
before they go and extend the loan. So that's that's a challenge. And and, and I, I talked to a lot of these lenders saying, man, if you can find a way to kind of come up with some way to, to better manage that or to be able to extend some of it ahead of time with, with expectations. And I know they're working on it, but, but it, it's a challenge for them because the collateral they use uh, for these loans is the cash flows of the business. So it's better for them to have seen the assets move over first and there they are. But where this might uh, still be an option for you is perhaps uh, you drain, uh, you, you have cash in the bank um, and you're willing to commit it, but but you also prefer on a personal level to, to have a buffer there just, just in general for, for life and for your family. But you maybe have to kind of, you know, drain that cash pool down quite a bit again to get over this hump. So what I have seen some folks do is, hey, drain down kind of personal finances, maybe the home equity line. And then once you're on the other side, after the dust settles, after the assets are there, then perhaps look at one of these lending sources take out a loan and, and essentially recapitalize your personal balance sheet at that point. So that's that's a strategy you might want to consider as well. Um, but again, that's usually only after you're on the other side uh, to, to be able to even consider having those kind of conversations. Uh, so I hope this has been helpful. Again, this didn't this hasn't covered any and every possible cost that might be involved in the transition, but I, I did, did just want to drive home the point. It is important to have cash, have liquidity, leading up to pay for things, leading up to the transition, the cost you have to pay for ahead of time, and to kind of work through that inevitable brief temporary lull uh, going through the transition and how much cash liquidity you might desire to have. Again, whether you're on the same viewpoint as the advisor uh, example I shared, or whether you're more or less conservative, uh, certainly that's up to you. Certainly I can have that conversation with you to help you kind of map all these things through. But that I hope this just at least gives you a general idea of what you would be looking at to make the transition. So with that, like I said at the top, my name is Brad Wales with Transition RIA. This is the kind of thing I help advisors with every single day. Uh, you know, in, in this conversation, this was someone that has already done all the legwork with me and figured out that, that hey, it makes sense to go down this RIA path and what, what solutions uh, they're gonna pursue and the pathway they're gonna pursue. And then after you get there, again, you will need a cash cushion to cover these costs, cover process uh, to get through it. Uh, and so happy to have uh, this conversation with you if you want to dive into more on this topic uh, and how it would apply to your practice or anything else RIA related. I'm happy to have that conversation with you as well. Uh, as I said at the top, if you head on over to transition to RIA.com, you can find all of the resources I make available to help you better understand the RIA model on this entire series in video format, podcast format, I have articles, I have white papers, and at the top of every page is a contact link. Just click on that and you can instantly and easily schedule time to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me. I'm happy to have that conversation with you. And with that, I hope you found value in today's episode and I'll see you on the next one.